Jen Bosworth Ramirez. And I'm Gina Polici. We went to theater school together. We survived it, but we didn't quite understand it. 20 years later, we're digging deep, talking to our guests about their experiences and trying to make sense of it all. We survived theater school, and you will too. Are we famous yet? How are you? I'm pretty good. I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm the Midwest is getting snow. Are you getting snow today? Oh, don't. Oh God. Don't tell me. That. No. Good Lord above. Oh, help me, Jesus. Help me, Jesus. Um, I, I mean, I cannot. Let me put it out into the universe. I cannot handle that. I okay. cannot take Yeah, we're it. just going to put it out there. Nope. It's going to nope. be a big nope. Nope, it's a big hard pass. Well, I, yeah, I feel, I feel, um, I feel interested. <laughs> I'm interested in that. Um, you can, you can be. Yes, you can have a, a curiosity, morbid curiosity. It. But I'm not. But I don't want it for the East Coast. But just yeah. the Midwest. <laughs> the Midwest, like a lot of snow. I don't know. Like oh. wintry mix is how they put it. <laughs> <laughs> wait this is okay you keep tabs on the weather in chicago yeah because i'm i'm really i have to like really pump myself up that i moved like it helps me to feel like i made the right choice yeah interesting. it's it, that's interesting and um and my just, yeah. people in my family do that people in my fam like every once in a while every once in a while my mom will call and she'll be like she'll tell me she'll say like is it snowing there and i'm like what she yeah every morning she, my family's obsessed with the weather really yes like my cousin roxy she gets all the radars and she's tracking and she knows exactly what's coming this way i mean she should be a meteorologist frankly she's, she totally should have her own show on like so youtube on, she's a, she's so on top of the weather and my whole family is like that i think it might be I mean, it makes sense, like that. It, that would have been handed down if, if it were from farmers, you know, like that would have um, would be a big deal to like being paying attention like, to the weather. I, I that's like my favorite. Um, the only thing, well, not the only thing, but there was when I went to after my dad died, I went to the partial hospitalization program um, in Highland Park Hospital, mm -hmm. and um, in that time, I had a bunch of therapists. And some of them were horrible. And what, but one, but this one young, and now looking back, they were young as hell. Mm -hmm. They were young therapists and they were probably like, what in the, um, anyway, this one therapist said it was a gloomy day. It was a spring gloom or like summer gloomy day. And everyone was like, oh, this weather. And he said, you know, I just have this story, you know, whenever I, whenever I have the glooms and I feel like. And at the time I thought he was a, an idiot, but he said, when it's, I had plans to go to the beach today after our therapy, right? But now I can't go to the beach. And I was just thinking, and it reminds me like somewhere I'm, so I'm pissed off and depressed and somewhere there's a farmer that's rejoicing because his life is saved. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Okay. And I was like, it, it, great it, perspective. My late, God. Uh, later I was like, Oh my God, that is so deep. This farmer is like dancing because his farm is saved. And I'm like, but you know, and, and it's not to diminish anyone's pain, but it's also just perspective. Like you said, like 
perspective somewhere someone is happy and falling in love for the first time or somewhere you know like absolutely and for some reason that also just reminds me of maybe just because talking about Chicago when I was an intern social work school intern at Northwestern inpatient psychiatric the the people who worked at that I mean people who work in psych hospitals are so interesting especially if they've been working there for a really long time and this uh OT, occupational therapist guy, Fred Mahaffey. If you're out there, Fred, I love you. You taught me so much. Um, he He's the person who introduced me to DBT. Mm. Um, and I was sitting in his group and he came in and he said, I just got a very upsetting or I got a very troubling phone call, but I couldn't get into it because I have this group. And so right now the thing I'm going to practice is I can't know until I know. Oh, Fred, you're amazing. Right. I mean, I think about that all the time. You can't know until you know, which is really so much about worry and anxiety. It's all this worry about the things that we don't know. And sometimes that's appropriate. Sometimes, yeah, you should be worried because something terrible is going to happen. And other times you just waste all of the in-between and then it turns out to be nothing and you've just been tied up in knots for no reason. I am the more the older I get, the more I'm, I, I sort of um, am drawn to um, Tibetan Buddhism. Mm-hmm. And I am reading, I read it every couple of years. I read Pema Children's When Things Fall Apart. Okay. Heart advice for hard times or difficult times. It's oh. brilliant. It's, it is saving me in terms of, it goes beyond just don't strangle your hustle. It goes beyond Mm -hmm. that into life has you licked life. When life has you licked, when you're licked, there is no hope. And that is truly where the new beginning begins. Oh, wow. And Mm -hmm. I, I can get on board with that because when I, it reminds me of, and they talk a lot about, uh, she talks, Pema talks a lot about, and I'm sure she's not the only one, obviously in Buddhism, groundlessness, how we are, we are grasping for the ground at all times. And there is no ground. Now, look, if you're in acute psychiatric distress, this is not a helpful book because it, 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 I'm not saying that, but if you have some perspective, like we're saying, if you have, like, I have a, I'm not in acute psychiatric distress, praise God. Um, but once, once you can get step back a little bit and see, Oh, my my addiction to hope my addiction to things are going to get better is actually might not actually be helping me as much as i think that it is mm-hmm. um when i'm licked in my life when i when life has nailed me is true and i can admit it is truly when i begin to settle in and good things happen in my life it's just every mm-hmm. time Wow. Which is why 12 step programs work, you know? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. That, that notion of like clinging always to hope. That's very interesting. I remember this patient I encountered also when I was in training, I think it was also at Northwestern. (laughs) I think looking back, she had like low IQ. Yeah. You know, if you have low IQ and personality disorder, that's a tough combo Mm -hmm. because a lot of the, what's necessary for healing personality disorders, like a great understanding of what you're Mm -hmm. doing and how, how to undo it. 
she, she was so sweet in a way. She'd come in and she had all these aphorisms. She and I just got to keep the hope alive. And I just got to, and I just got, it's tomorrow's another day. And, you know, and I, I've always pictured her like a leaky bucket because she'd get all filled up, you know, in this group with everything she needed. And then it's like the minute she passed the threshold of the door, it all just leaked right back out. And oh my gosh. That, yeah. And I remember thinking like, maybe all these positive messages are actually really not helping her because it's, it's, it's giving a, I don't want to say it's a false hope, but it's like, and I hate this. And I've said this on the podcast before, so I apologize for repeating myself, but I hate the good vibes only no bad days crew because it's so unrealistic and it makes people paradoxically so much more depressed. And I think it makes them enraged. So I think the the under for me, what usually, yeah, under and under rage is for me is extreme sadness and um, hopelessness. And but the rage that comes up with, with you know, uh, life is good crew is like when when people don't jive mm-hmm. with it because it's like if life is good then dot 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 why are children murdered if life is good then why are police killing people? you know like what are you talking about and I think that's a spiritual bypass people do so if I'm gonna make an inspirational mug (laughs) mine is gonna say life is good dot 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 sometimes because it is good sometimes and then on the other side life is bad dot 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 sometimes like the point is you take the good when you can get it because it won't last you take the bad bad, you take them them both both and there you have the facts facts of life life. burner (laughs) i loved that show my god loved it loved it Tootie on roller skates. I lived and died by two. I well, I roller skated because right. Of her. I was gonna mm-hmm. say, is that part of your? Because you're a roller skater. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I was a big Joe fan. Joe, uh huh. Yeah, she was cool. She was. Cool. I hated Blair, of course. Most people did. Natalie, and I felt bad for. They just feel, made fun I, uh, of her. I know. I feel bad for Natalie too. I I kind of felt like she was I wanted a, her to get off the show. <laughs> she was a trope, you know? Yeah. Yes. She was a sad trope. Sad trope. Well, I have been accepted as uh, an official member of the Myrtle Tree Climate <gasps> Action Team. Congratulations. <laughs> is, that, is that the name of the group that does your CSA or your whatever your community, the community garden? garden? It's the Myrtle Tree Cafe. They that's where they used to meet before COVID. Okay. Myrtle, I think, I, and forgive me if I say this wrong. A Myrtle Tree Cafe climate action team. It's amazing. We're superheroes. <laughs> it's a crazy yes. name. So that I like wristbands or something. I'm an official member, so I, I get a key and an orientation Wednesday. I'm telling you that gardening has really changed and 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 changed my life in terms of my health and and feeling like i'm doing something for the planet both wow. it's crazy it's just gardening it's not like i'm you know no but that's what they say little acts are revolutionary like just mm-hmm. t- being responsible for like learn le- le- even just learning where all, where all your food comes from and like that, that's that's a small i thought food came from mcdonald's like i yeah, literally right. thought that that mcdonald's, McDonald's was tree food- was the food source, you yeah. know, or Jack in the Box? That's not actually what it is. No. Um, I was going to ask you, uh, what are you going to grow? That's my question for you. Okay, uh, we had some what of a debate about the things to grow, and 
mostly I was doing this. I was picking things out with my oldest son and he, he was actually being quite logical about it. He, I wanted to get kale and and he was like, mom, nobody likes kale, including you, (laughs) which is really true. (laughs) And you're the only person who likes Brussels sprouts and you're the only person who likes cauliflower. Let's get broccoli and bell pepper and he loves hot things so we got Mm. some jalapenos and so we got a broccoli a jalapeno a bell pepper and then we have um uh my daughter has she was really into the seeds thing yes yes she she got like a bunch i know i don't feel i feel like none of them are going to work out but she got sunflowers and and... sunflowers might they're super hardy sunflowers might come up and last for about 45 years so just (gasps) okay yeah sunflowers are hardy we have a a great spot for sunflowers so that would be great so anyway so we're just starting like easy peasy because you know we don't we've never done it before and we're not sure how it's gonna go so i didn't want to invest a bunch of money in something that people do that and and if you have pests that are non uh, this is so interesting to me when you have like aphids or inchworms or stuff like that. A lot of times, not all the times I'm learning a lot of times. It means that your soil health is in jeopardy, not the actual plant. This is crazy. Okay. So a lot of times pests attack plants that aren't doing so well anyway. It's <laughs> so crazy. I never knew that. I thought, Oh, they attack them because they're assholes. Well, no, they're <laughs> They might be. There might be an occasional inchworm asshole, you know, like a Trump worm. But <laughs> but but a lot of times pests can tell when the plant the soil this is worm carrying around a semi automatic with a toupee or whatever. <laughs> McDonald's. There's our chi- yeah, there's our <laughs> McDonald's McFlurry in one hand. Um, uh, <laughs> there's Sorry, our ch- there's our kids show right there. Uh, <laughs> hey, let me run this by you. Uh, let's see here. Well, I have a thing to talk to you about that is. Um, it's kind of a bummer and I'm feeling good. I'm not sure if I should bring it up, but maybe I'll try to have a new perspective about it. Okay. I've had a couple memory slips that have been troubling to me. Oh, tell me all about it. One was one moment. I just couldn't remember my passcode to my phone. Okay. It came to me a couple of hours later. Okay. But I thought it was this one thing. And then it, it was Aaron had my phone. He's like, what's your passcode? And I, and I give him this passcode. That doesn't work. In it. And I'm like, oh, well, maybe it's. And then all of a sudden it just like vanished. Oh. And I really started freaking you out. You did? Like, yes. I freaked freaking out because. And I think. I think this might be something I inherited from. My mother is very concerned about losing her memory. This is like her biggest fear. So whenever she forgets something, she panics. And to the point that I feel she doesn't allow for any just normal forgetting of things, which I haven't had that problem berating myself for the normal forgetting of things. But that passcode thing freaked me. Like it it just was gone. It was there and then it was gone. That was one. And the other thing I'm probably going to have a hard time remembering. Um, 
No, I think actually there isn't another thing oh. like that. It's just more that I, it's just more that I, you know, because kids have great memories and my kids are constantly telling me, remember when we blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, ah, vaguely, I, I mean, really? Did we, did we do that? Is that normal? Or should I start my ginkgo biloba's? I do so many word puzzles. I should have good brain health. So what the first thing that comes to mind is that I know, okay, this podcast, right, is bringing up a lot of memories for people, for us and for oh, people. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. I believe that sometimes trauma stored when it comes out or even, even, even all this, we're, we're taking in other people's trauma too. Right. That's true. So your mind can only hold so much so i'm wondering if that also is a response to an overload of other you're and you do all the editing you do every you listen and listen so you're taking it in over and over again and the and people were traumatized you know not everybody but a lot of people that we talk to have been traumatized by their experience so in college and so and subsequent and what it meant and all that so i'm wondering if you're partially it is just a trauma a response to a lot of information going into your brain um it could be. And as a, as a mother, I do have to remember so many, I mean, honestly, the landscape of what I have to remember is, it's astounding. Um, and, and people do say that there's like a fog of motherhood that, you know, it's, you never, you never get it back, but you have an excellent memory. I do. You have an excellent short-term memory. Well, your long-term though, you've struggled to remember things about I never, no, I also never remember your birthday to save my life. Now I have it in my phone. Like, it's just so weird. And it's not just your birthday. I don't remember people. People will tell me my birthday is September, you know, 22nd. And I'm like, no, no, it's not. I, I, what? So no. So my mem, but Hmm. my memory, I also don't have children, but also, um, I know that. Okay. So when my, when my father was dying in the hospital my memory i couldn't remember where i parked ever when i would go visit him at the hospital i would be sobbing wandering around the parking lot until one came to pick me up in a little cart and drove me and he said the guy said it happens all the time with people visiting loved ones in the hospital because they're so traumatized they never remember where they park even though i would i would like I didn't even write it down, you know, because I was so wigged out. But I would say C14, C4 or whatever it is. And no memory after I would visit my father at the ICU. So I just think trauma and. um, Or just even upsetting feelings can. Yeah. Overload, um, listening to other people's stuff. It's it's our brains are not that big. If you think about it, it's like we have a super, I mean, you know, there's a lot there's, and we only use, they say part of it, but I I would venture to say we use more than they say. Um, Yes. I recently read that that's a myth. It's not true that we use 10% of our brains. We use all of our brains. I mean, which is not to say that you can, I think what that myth comes from is like, you, you can expand your, you can flex your muscle the, the, the your the muscle of your brain you can <clears throat> strengthen it or weaken it 
um, which is why I'm like addicted to doing all these little puzzles. Yeah, and stuff. I, I mean, I know that it's scary. So then it's scary. So I had a similar thing where when we came back from I would have sworn that my code to the locker was we have a locker that ha stores our mail. It's like, it's really mm -hmm. great package locker. And I just couldn't for the, mine was more like, I just knew in my head it was a number. And so I kept entering it and it was like, no, no, no. And I was like, well, something must be wrong with this machine. I had the wrong number the whole time, but I was convinced that it was this one number. And I'm like, and anyway, I, I was dumbfounded when I found out it was really this other number. I was like, yeah, I mean, I, I now that we're talking about it, I, I do think it's normal, but it's also about aging. It's really hard to separate out. Oh, hang on. My phone is ringing. It's really hard to separate out the things that we should be worried about versus the oh, things that are normal. Right. That is. Tell me about it with my ticker. I'm like. Oh my gosh, yeah. you know, and, and my, my cardiologist is not that worried, but then I get worried. It's just, um, you hit, this is what my, in the hospital, what they told me you hit 40 between 40 and 50 and the check engine light comes on 90% more than it ever does. Right. And you're like, what is happening and what it, and, and really what we're, what I'm asking anyway, when I ask these questions of doctors and things is when am I going to die? Am I going to die? Is this going to kill me? And it's not, I'm not like we talk about, I'm not petrified of death. What I'm petrified of is losing control. Right. So I'm really asking, is this going to be something I have no control over? And like at any moment is some weird stuff going to happen to me? And the answer is maybe they don't know, but they, mm -hmm. They know more than we do because of all the schooling and the and the research, but they no one can tell you exactly when you're going to die. Dare I say we can't know until we know. Oh, I went on a full circle. Full circle. <laughs> Always looking to land that plane <laughs> right, right back at the airport that we started. Did I ever tell you about my poop in the backyard story? <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> all right. I was a latchkey kid, as a lot of us were. And my mom was a working mom who, who was very, very uh, type A at times and mean at times. And uh, well, we've talked about that and left my key, lost my key or left it at school or something, came home, no key, no way I was going to walk to my mom's office, which was only eight blocks away because I was petrified because I left my key. I was just going to wait till someone got home, pretend I had just walked home. It was a whole orchestrated thing. Mm -hmm. uh, but then I had to go to the bathroom number two. And I was like, oh no, what do you do? So a normal person might go to the neighbor's house who might, by the way, might've had a key and said, can I use your bathroom? But I was so embarrassed that I had to poop that I didn't. So then I'm waiting and I'm like, I got to poop. So then I tried to break in the house in by pulling screens out of the basement and I break a window. I'm like, oh my God. Oh my gosh. So it just, it, anyway, I ended up pooping in the backyard. Okay. This is rough. Pooping in the backyard, doing my business. It was a whole situation. Uh, uh, and then someone came home and I, I my, did my plan as a plan, right? You did your scene. I did my scene. It worked out. People were seemingly convinced. Don't ask me any of the technical stuff about the pooping but anyway so the point not that you were going to but the 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 point is then in the middle it, we're, we're having a 
a, a, a fine evening. And then I hear my mom screaming in the basement. And I'm like, oh, no. She's like, someone tried to break in. Oh, yeah. And I don't say anything. This is the thing about fear and shame. Mm-hmm. I say nothing. They call the police. Oh, my God. oh no. Oh, dear. Uh-oh. This is not good. So the police come. And they're like, and I'm petrified they're going to dust for prints and then match my <laughs> As only a child who was obsessed with true crime, uh, true crime this would was right worry. around the time of America's Most Wanted and yeah. Unsolved Mysteries. And I'm like, oh, my God. Dust for prints. So then I'm like, how do I get off my fingerprints? I didn't go down that road. I didn't oh, cut myself God. or hurt myself in any way other than my pride and shame. The police are like, well, it, yeah, it looks like someone may have tried to break in. But so then but they left. But then it didn't end there. In the middle of the night, I set my alarm and I went down into the basement and I took the glass, the remaining glass, and I walked three blocks and put it in someone else's garbage so that they could never find my prince again. So I was telling this to a friend and they were like, whoa, we were unpacking it. And I guess the thing is, I was so ashamed it, it, it was so, I was so ashamed of the, the mom thing, but it manifested in the poop thing. And, and like, just ashamed that I had needs of any kind or that I would make a mistake or forget something that I went to such lengths to cover it up. And I just, I think we do these things and it just reminds me of like, you know, what we always say on this podcast, which is like, you know, it's better to just own up. But when you're a kid and you feel like you're going to die or something terrible is going to happen to you if you if you own up to your mistake, you go through such lengths. And I just am not willing to go through those lengths anymore. I, I, yeah. I, I just can't do it. I just know it's not worth it. And <clears throat> one of the things that we've learned from the people who have almost come on the podcast, but then ultimately said, I can't, it's too painful. Um, we've often had the experience that those people seemed perfectly happy, go lucky, etc. So, so, so we as humans are constantly berating ourselves, like you say, for having needs, for having bad experiences, to the point that we won't share with anybody that we're having a bad experience, which of course makes us feel worse, more lonely, more isolated, more helpless, more hopeless. Um, So that, you know, it's almost like the dam, the dam breaks. You, you, you can only shove or, or the image of the closet. You can only shove so many things in the closet and one day you open up the closet and it just can't take it anymore. And it all comes spilling out and it's understandable. I'm not saying that people should, you know, I'm not saying that it should be any other way than it is. I'm just saying, I guess what I'm really saying is if you're 25 and listening to this and you're a person who's hiding all of your things, just just ask yourself, what is what am I hiding? What am yes. I really afraid of? And like, try to tease it out. Is this something you should really be ashamed about or afraid of sharing with other people? Because it right. probably, it's probably not no. that big of a deal. No, and the you- sh- it's not worth it. 
it's not usually it's not worth it now i don't know right. you know for me it has not been worth it so i was thinking about that story just the gymnastics i went through the physical gymnastics the i could have yeah. cut myself on the glass like what in the but it just it's a deep thing and i was telling a friend that and she was like whoa this is so deep so is it that you're thinking because your mom is type a were you thinking she's she's the kind of person who's definitely going to try to get to the bottom of this and would 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 get to the point where she would be asking somebody to, to dust for fingerprints it was more like it was more like trying to put that floating molly bolt shelf into the wall that and the whole it just the story of my childhood was whenever i was doing the best i could but whenever i i would try to keep it all together the hole would get bigger and bigger mm -hmm. and no one would help me out of the hole i think that's the other part is that i had to do everything by myself and that my mother would ultimately say what is wrong with you you yeah. should have X, Y, and Z. So instead of facing that shame, I just tried to do it on my own and it never worked ever, mm -hmm. ever, never, ever. So I think, yeah, I think it's the fact of I was alone and I just kept making things worse because I mm -hmm. didn't know, I couldn't, I didn't feel like I could share with anybody. So it's like, at some point you got to step back from the hole in the wall and say, I'm licked. This has got me. I need to ask for a mechanic, a, a handy, I don't even know, a handyman's help, not a mechanic. The thing that also that that tends to do in people um, when they feel like they can never ask anybody for help is they can never develop intimate relationships with people because you, you if you can never trust that. So when were you first in your life? Was it with Miles that you were first able to have real intimacy that you would, that yeah. you would be, yeah, trust him to? Yeah. That know to, you. to not go away, to not leave, to not be like, oh my God, you forgot your key. I'm never talking to you again. You know, whatever mm -hmm. it is, that was really, and so I, that was, th I was 30. I mean, come, I mean, 30 yeah. years old, 30 yeah. years of not trusting. So it's really interesting. Rough. It's deep that stuff. That takes a toll. That takes, takes a, a toll. toll on your ticker. I'm telling you right now. Mm -hmm. It'll take a toll on your ticker. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So just, just a little, a light poop story to, to really wrap <laughs> it up with. <laughs> Uh, today um, it's all it's all frankly it's all poop stories it's all poop stories it's, you right got it. at the end of the day it's all it it's is. all cover it's all shame today on the podcast we talk with paul holmquist Paul Holmquist, we went to school with back in the day, and after we graduated, he continued to be a theater actor for many years and then transitioned into directing for the stage. And a couple of years ago, he felt he really wanted to make a difference, and he decided to become a high school English teacher, which is what he does now in addition to being an artist. He's thoughtful and kind. His stories really were moving, and um, I'm so grateful that he decided to speak with us. So please enjoy our conversation with Paul Holmquist. Uh, this is my second year. I just joined the profession, oh. so I'm very new. Yeah. Oh, you just became a teacher two years ago? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, that's cool. Yeah. Where do you teach? Yeah. I teach at a uh, Southside Chicago vocational high school called Sh uh, Chicago Vocational Career Academy. It's down by the Skyway. Like if you're driving down the Skyway, this giant looks like a Batman villain mm -hmm. uh, hideout. Mm -hmm. 
that's Chicago vocational. And so did you, um, how come you made that career shift? Yeah. Tell us all about it. Tell Um, us all about it. (laughs) Is it okay to talk politics? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, uh, you know, when Trump got elected, I was like, I got to do something different. (laughs) And I don't quite know what it is, but maybe I could teach high school English because I have a background in theater. But it just seemed like maybe I need to do something because I was working a really great day job for like 15 years that had benefits and a fairly decent salary allowing me to do theater and stuff. But once the election hit, it was just felt like something I needed to change something. I was not very satisfied with, um, you know, there was like no growth at my day job. What was that job? Uh, administ- an administrative assistant position at at uh, Columbia College. Mm. So I was still kind of close to the artistic community while I was working there, but um, I had kind of a neurotic boss and I was there for 15 years and there was no like, there was no growth. I'd kind of plateaued there. Um, and I wasn't making a difference anywhere. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it felt like I needed to do something. So I was like, I'm going to become a high school English teacher. Wow. Uh, so, so I went back to DePaul. I became a double demon. And I, <laughs> double I, demon, I, D-squared. That's what they call that's it. That's cute. That's what they call it. Um, so I went to the College of Education and got a master's uh, there. That's so great. Yeah. Uh, education is a fantastic way to make a difference. Yeah, it's... Um, and it's a, a, a good segue from the uh, from the theater work. I mean, there's there's a lot of parallels. We didn't say uh, Beans didn't say her usual opening. Congratulations, Paul Holmquist! You survived theater school. <laughs> I'm still here to tell the tale. And you That's went right. on to be a double demon. I love this phrase. I think we should use it always, even if you didn't get two degrees from DePaul. I feel I'm a double demon because I spend so much time talking about the theater school. <laughs> Right, you got a master's degree in the theater school after going. Yes, and Boz and I have masters in processing your theater school education. (laughs) My, I've been listening to your podcast now, and I had I actually had to take a break before for the last week, or else I'd be too uh, neurotic about what I was going to say today. mm -hmm. But I really find this podcast to be so personally helpful. Like I find it's like it feels like a like a group therapy kind of process, but protracted where we're each taking turns, but hearing other uh, alum just talk about what they experienced, I was like, holy cow, I'm not alone. No. I had similar experiences and wow. wow. What's, what's an example of something that really resonated with you? Hmm. Well, I guess I, I thought I'm, this is coming off of hearing uh, interviews from, from friends like Bradley Walker and Eric Slater is I thought those upperclassmen guys had it all together. Mm. You know, Lee, Lee Kirk. I thought these guys were like, just had, just knew what they were going for, knew what they were doing. They just seemed so successful. And I was, felt like the, you know, like I was flailing along trying to find my way. It's so great to hear that, um, <laughs> to, to hear Bradley talk about his uh coin yes oh yeah coin tricks with just with such despair like as as if it but on my end i thought he was the coolest dude like he had this cool thing that he did yeah and slater was so awesome like i didn't know he was insecure like all i just all that stuff is really really great i'm glad i i think that's i mean obviously that's part of why why i think we do it is 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 to um 
facilitate some kind of, if not healing, because that's a kind of lofty word, but some kind of, <laughs> let's not go there, but, but, but um, understanding or camaraderie in the fact that we all um, went through this thing. It's true. And most people felt like an outsider. Most people. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I want to be like, if you're if you're in theater school right now, spoiler alert, everybody look around you, <laughs> the person on your right and the person on your left. Yes, they also feel the same way you do. Uh, but unfortunately, we cannot say that at the time because we're busy, like trying to seem like we have it all together. That's that's a common thing. And there is also a little bit of like, you don't want to admit weakness in theater school, except at the exact moment you need to access it for a scene that you're in. Well, I, and it really, it's it strikes for me the difference between being an MFA and being a BFA is coming in as an adolescent. Like you're still in developmental processes that haven't resolved mm -hmm. while you're going through this, you know, self-reflective, um, all the body stuff. Uh, that comes up, and I'm so fascinated to hear that it came up for other people too. Like all, all of that stuff is part of while we're in the process of personality development to have to be under fire mm -hmm. from these mm -hmm. artists from the 70s. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Basically, <laughs> who have different politics and strange Basically, ideas. Bob Dylan taught us. Um. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So, but when you were doing your day job um, that you left, you were doing theater at night is that what yeah um I mean for the past like 20 years I've I've directed and acted in shows um pretty regularly yeah, yeah. Wait, um did you have like a, a place where you mostly hung out a theater company that you were a part of right yeah so right after college um I didn't really hook up with a theater company but that seemed to be the the way for Chicago actors to go after graduation was to like either link up together or link up with another theater company to start. And I, I remember because the timeline was so new then. Um, and I did a show with them, like their second show that Barry Brunetti directed. And, um, and I had a feeling in my, I had a, like this investment in my heart, like, okay, I'm going to be a timeline guy. Regret. I'm going to join up with PJ and, and we're, I'm going to be a part of that. And Juliet, I'm going to be a part of that group. And it didn't pan out that way. I ended up um, kind of gravitating up into Andersonville, working with the Griffin Theater, where another uh, DePaul alum named Rick Barletta was uh, artistic director. Um, he was a Goodman director, Goodman trained director. Um, so I still stuck with some DePaul people, um, kind of grew up with the Griffin Theater. And then uh, in 2006, I joined Lifeline Theater, which is up here in Rogers Park, uh, where I live. It's right down the street from where I live. And I've been there since. We do literary adaptations, um, all original plays. And uh, so I've had the pleasure of directing amazing stuff like The Count of Monte Cristo and Frankenstein and The Island of Dr. Moreau and, um, you know, British murder mysteries and a wide range of really cool stuff. How did, fantastic. You, how did you go? So you started directing then. So how did you bridge that situation? I, I yeah, I kind of, well, through my, this a little bit of setup here. So through my day job, I got um, trained in Laban movement analysis, which is a movement, theatrical, physical, expressional, expressionistic movement modality. It's kind of like um, 
I don't know if you remember Patrice did stuff with us about uh, punch and float, flick yeah. and dab, that kind of stuff. So um, through the department I was working for, I was able to get a, a graduate certificate in this modality for free. And I wanted to apply it to my own acting. And so I, I was doing, I was playing a cat in a, uh, in a, in a young adult show called Angus Thongs and Full Frontal Snogging at, uh, at Griffin Theater. Wow, what a I mouthful. Played, I, played, I played Angus. I had no lines, but I was a cat. And I was doing all this physical stuff. And I was getting to know through that production um, a lot of the uh, uh, main players at Lifeline because they were doing a lot of the design on this show. And kind of getting to know them and having a good rapport with them. They were designers, not um, are not uh, acting, directing people. Um, but I developed a good rapport with them. And that kind of started to introduce me to the people at Lifeline. And eventually they invited me to direct a kid's show um, just as an experiment. And I tried directing uh, Ricky Tiki Tavi, and that became a great success. Um, and then after that, my first, actually my first main stage show was uh, The Island of Dr. Moreau, which was a 90-minute immersive, violent horror piece. So I, like, I right away jumped into something that was really bizarre and uh, unusual. And since then, it's been just a, a blast. I mean, I get a lot of creative freedom. I have <laughs> to ask you a question. I recently have heard this term all over the place, immersive. And I don't, if I knew what it was previously, I it, it didn't drop in. Because when I think of immersive, I think like you go to a haunted house. <laughs> Yeah, right. No, right, right. I guess I think of immersive as being like a full sensory experience okay. as much as possible. And, um, you know, in storefront theater, especially places like Lifeline, where you can have entrances surround the audience, you can really have uh, the sense of like an actor's right next to you they, and they're acting like an animal breathing in your ear and it creates a sort of sense of tension. Okay. I'm going back 20 years now thinking about this show, but that's what I think of an immersive theater. Other people might think of it as like you're wandering around from room to room. Yeah. Or you're more interactive okay. like that. Like cats. I get you. Cats. I saw cats on Broadway in the 80s. It was cats came right next to me. So that was immersive. Okay. Thank you. you Thank you for clarifying that because uh, I I felt it was one of those things like I felt it was was too dumb to ask about. Okay. So where are you from? Uh, I am from upstate New York. I'm from uh, the Rochester, New York area, a little suburb called Webster. Okay. And, um, but you have not ever returned there. After school, you stayed in Chicago. You've been in Chicago. I stayed in Chicago. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Did you grow up acting? Uh, yeah. I, I, I thought of this, of course. Like, I think it was around fourth grade that I was in my first school play. And it felt like um, people liked what I was doing. And it was, it was one of those, like, I'm coming into my own. I'm like 10 years old starting to figure out, you know, think about who I might want to be identity wise. And that seemed to, um, to work for me. Now, then when I changed schools in seventh grade, I was shy. I was never really athletic or um, I picked up the trumpet, but I wasn't a great musician, you know, Mm -hmm. but I got a lot of great response when I did theater work. And that just kind of, uh, that's what grew. You know, you gravitate towards those things where you get the positive mm. feedback. 
That is true. Did you have did you have one of those intense uh like high school drama? I don't, you, since you've listened to some of the podcasts, you've probably heard tell of some character uh teachers from high school (laughs) i had a wonderful drama person who was not we had no drama classes we did not take any acting classes or have any any sort of immersion like that we just did two shows a year a play and a musical and um uh so you just hung out at the club and and picked up what you picked up but my drama teacher she knew that i was serious and there was a, a a guy who was a year ahead of me in college who ended up going to tish um a year ahead of me in high school, I ended up going to Tish, and he and I were, we did a two-man show cool. called Greater Tuna. Oh, yeah, Greater Tuna. yeah. Can I show you something real sure, quick? Hold sure. on a sec. Greater Tuna is hilarious. Hilarious show. Oh. That's from you. Greater Tuna? So this is Mark and I. In costume, oh my gosh. playing all of our different characters. Oh, that's in high school. Amazing! Wow, that's that that's, is some production yeah, value for high school. So it's a yeah, it's a high school. It's a two man show, uh, multi character. It's kind of like Mystery of Irma Vep, where you know you run off stage and you change costume real quick and come back on. So Mark and I, we took uh, our acting kind of seriously. We took ourselves somewhat seriously as actors. Um, and uh, Tish was definitely on my list when I was looking for colleges. Mm-hmm. Where but else? You, yeah, where you, else? Yeah, how'd you end up at DePaul? I love the, <laughs> the, the choosing stories or how they choose you. Um, yeah, totally. So uh, Tish, uh, I was accepted at Tish, and I even got a little money at Tish, but they accepted me into the experimental theater wing, and I had no idea what that was, and it didn't seem like me. I mean, I had grown up in kind of a cul-de-sac of a, uh, suburb you know with very limited exposure to what experimental theater might even be so but DePaul just felt like so nice I came to DePaul after uh, visiting New York City and auditioning there and um, so I auditioned at DePaul in the theater school building with Dave Desmolchen he wouldn't remember that he was in my audition group but I remember him in his cutoff jeans and his Janis Joplin t-shirt very well I was so enamored with him because he seemed so um, organic. Whereas I was wearing a black mock turtleneck and black jeans and uh, slicked back hair. And I was trying to be very artistic. I'm sure you were. I was was also in the middle of playing Tevya in A Fiddler on the Roof Mm -hmm, in high school. mm -hmm. Yes, the most Aryan Tevya. Uh-huh. Well, you probably stage. didn't have any Jews in your high school. <laughs> if I, yeah, I don't know if, if we did, they probably weren't involved in the theater department as much as I was. Yeah. So it was like, uh, I was going in there trying to be a serious artist and I saw David um, and I didn't know him, you know, at all. I was just seeing him for the first time. And I was like, this is wild. This is what I want to get into. So part of what inspired me was John Jenkins leading the uh, audition, which I thought he was just a brilliant guy, and watching David wow. in the audition made me feel like I want to be there is... because this guy's. Does amazing. he know that? Does he know that? No. Oh, well, he uh, will now. Well, now, now you, yeah. If he listens, if he yes, listens, he'll we'll have know. to tell him to listen to this one. You just remind. I guess we haven't really ever talked, Boz. Correct me if I'm wrong. Have we ever talked about the fact that we did? part of the audition all together in the same room. Is that what you're talking about? Like the, the yeah. warm up thing? 
So John, I remember this so vividly. Uh, John had us doing a scenario where we were um, a hunter in a forest and we were going to like walk along one side of the wall and the animal that we're hunting does a diagonal cross across the room and we chase after it. And halfway through crossing the room, we leap like the animal. We're supposed to mimic the animal's leap. And part of the crossing, like the hunting, we were supposed to step on rocks in a stream or something like that to cross it. And I would, I would just like, over, you know, I had everything planned out. I remember overthinking it very much, but also like being in line, waiting your turn. You're observing how other people are doing it. And this is, this is where David really comes in because when he left like that animal, he seemed to take air in the room uh, because he was unbound by his own, you know, insecurity, or at least that's the way I interpret right. it. Wow. I'm really yeah. deifying David here. It's kind of fun. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. So you said taking yourself seriously and overthinking, ding, ding, ding. These are things I really relate to. These are near and dear to my heart. What is your journey been of taking yourself seriously? And, you know, like, has there been any evolution or movement on that? I, you're going to think I'm nuts for saying this, but I swear that this show has helped in a little way. So I feel like I'm still in a process of recognizing what my expectations were, you know, for myself and my career. How did those change was, and how were, how was I influenced to change my ideas about that? And where am I now? Like, what do I want for myself now as an artist? And, and how has that shifted? Uh, that, so I've done a lot of processing on this because I am in therapy and I have been for a while, but also your show has really helped also turn some pages for me. So thanks. You're so welcome. Um, I mean, unbelievably wonderful. Thank you. That's like very touching. I, 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 I just <laughs> want to, so in terms of taking yourself seriously, I feel like <laughs> there, that's a way to go. I took myself, it was like, I had such self-centered fear that I didn't take myself seriously, but I took my fear really seriously of the, of, of being at school. You know, it was different. <laughs> I wish I had taken myself seriously as an artist, <laughs> but really what I did was just dive right into my shame and fear. <laughs> I just really did a deep dive into that. And so I'm wondering, how did you learn to take your, like, I, I know we're saying like taking ourselves seriously can be kind of, it can be um, an Achilles heel, but also like, did you just, were you just born with like, yes, I'm an artist and here I am at school? No, I mean, I, I think that what started at school was using alcohol and drugs to keep myself from feeling that kind of fear and insecurity. So um you know, going at school, going at classes with kind of a boldness and an energy while also fighting a little bit of a hangover oh. or maybe still maybe maybe coming to class a little high, hmm. you know, that helped a okay. lot. Hmm. Well, there you go. That makes. And then and it all fit in with taking myself seriously as an artist because oh, sure. artists drink. Oh, and yeah. And get high all the time. Right. Anyway, you were talking about apartment. What was it? Three. Apartment three. Or apartment? Apartment three. Yeah. And like, you know, we're going to get high and we're going to do space object work like. <laughs> I'm a serious artist, you know, <laughs> I can really feel the weight of my space objects when I mm -hmm. am stoned. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's some serious work. <laughs> I, you guys, do you ever wonder, like, is that, do you think that's still part of the college? Ex I guess it probably is. I, it's probably still very much a part of the college experience, right? Yeah. I, I don't think drugs will ever yeah. stop being 
or anything that's illegal is going to stop you. It's just that we talk, we talked to somebody uh, last week who is at the theater school. Now he's graduating this year mm. and I didn't ask him, but I wanted to know like, so like, what's the, I mean, he, he's talked very wonderfully about the experience of, of being an actor at the school, but I, I also kind of wanted to know like, What's the whole social yes. scene? Right? I want it to be. I want it to be like. Were you like me, drinking Mickey's forties, big mouths, and peeing on school property? But I didn't ask. That. <laughs> but I did not ask that because I thought, mm. yeah, and he probably he might not have wanted uh, to say in like, any case. That's he's, so funny. He's still in it. <laughs> well, um, my wife is on faculty there now, so she teaches she teaches movement there now, and I've been back a couple of times. I directed an intro there and. Oh. Um, done some guest lecturing there so i've been back in the new building and the old building uh before it was torn down so i've kind of maintained some ties to the theater school over the years um and i don't think i think the students (laughs) the student experience has changed just because the times have changed so much you know and the the um but and i think they're a little bit more savvy than perhaps we were they don't do the god squad parties mm, anymore. Mm-hmm. you know that i think they still probably have some form of god squad but it's not the like mm-hmm. bacchanal yeah. right right that's probably for the best you know i was gonna say the person we interviewed that is at the theater school talked about your wife and said that one oh, of yeah? the reasons that he loved the audition process was or when he went he took i think a movement class with her and and that he talked about her so anyway we're coming full circle here it's real crazy yeah it's great and it's so fun to hear these stories, too, and to talk about them with Christina, because she's working with Phyllis and Patrice. Uh, she worked with John. She worked with John Bridges. She's, you know, she knows these people. So they're and the, so that history is still living. You know, the history is still to. Yeah. So what did you so you got this movement training and you, oh, and you with it, you taught. That's that's. Yes. That and was... I did a little bit of teaching that way. OK. Yeah. Yeah. And, sorry. Did you say where you were teaching that? Technique? Columbia at Columbia College, okay. Chicago. OK. But not in the theater department. It was through this other uh, graduate uh, arts therapy department that I was working for. Oh, okay. So now that there's no more cut system, there isn't this uh, direct connection between the theater school and Columbia because a lot of you don't have a theater college going into right, going into Columbia. Right. right. But is it still a very robust acting program there? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And um, and still has that sort of scrappy energy. Um, you know, Sheldon, I think, really established a, um, a, a pathos around that place, around that uh, building and that program that still continues. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, um, I was going to ask you, while you were at the the good old theater school, I, I remember you as being a, a musical theater guy. Am I making that up? Hmm. Were you a big musical theater guy? I Yeah, I loved, loved to sing. Absolutely. And yeah, and Van- Vanessa was more of the singer, but she and I would do... Um, we were in that uh, Michael Maggio, Keith Redeem musical, The uh, Perpetual Patient. Ben Clement was the lead in that. Um, that must have been Stu. after, our, was that your final year? Oh, maybe that was, yeah, it was after you thought. Yeah. But I was there, I remember, yeah. Okay, so Perpetual Patient, that was a musical? Mm-hmm. Did you say Michael mm-hmm. Maggio wrote it? Uh, Keith Redeem wrote it. It was an adaptation of The Imaginary Invalid. <gasps> oh. So it was an adaptation of Moliere made into a musical that um uh um oh my gosh mike no um 
Oh, Mark Elliott. Mark, Mark Elliott wrote the music for. Mark Elliott wrote the music for. Keith Redeem did the uh, script and the lyrics, and Maggio directed. So Keith came to uh, some of our rehearsals um, because Keith and Michael had a relationship. So I got a lot of scripts autographed that day. I remember. How and, cool! So what are what what are some other roles that you loved? Or didn't. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. Um, Well, working with Michael, I think, were the two roles that really helped me understand myself as a character actor. I I did uh, Miss Alliance, which Eric spoke about. um, And uh, I provided you one of the pictures of me. All all the pictures of me have a mustache attached to them. Um, (laughs) This seemed to be my go-to. But yeah, being being in Miss Alliance and playing uh, a character role in that with a kind of a goofy dialect and silly physicality and extreme stakes and working with like Tim Gregory and, uh, you know, Louise Rosette and Eric and all these Ellen and all these great people. Like I was a, I was a junior and it was my, it was the fall of my junior year and I was on the main stage. And I remember that being like, that was pretty prestigious. That was pretty cool. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll probably never forget that show. So that one and I would say Perpetual Patient were both really big for me in regards to embracing my my character actor stuff. And anything anything that you weren't so pleased about? <laughs> um, gosh, I mean, going even going back to intros, I tried to you know you try to make the most out of everything. Even when I had like um, a, a, like a walk on role in something, you try to. You ever hear the story about um, Betsy Hamilton said the story about Don Ilko. She saw him on stage once. He was the third speared carrier to the left. And she, that he was so memorable in that role with no lines. And I remember her saying this, like you can make anything out of, you know, if you're working with the director. So I always try to make something out of the roles I was in. I remember Jenkins saying to me after we did Balming Gilead as an intro mm-hmm. and he had Joe Sakura and I uh, flip roles halfway through the play where Joe played the lead the first half of the play. And then I played it the lead like seconds before he got shot. <laughs> and, and like, it was so hard to get into that role and to like, try and feel like I'm that character in the moment that I know I'm about to die. And like, that was really hard. And John apologized for that, but that was, I now, think that's the only regret. Wait, so did he do that because it made sense for the player? He was just trying to get people more stage time. Yeah, I think that's the you know the sort of unspoken uh, rule of the intros is like you want to give everyone some kind of equal, oh. mm-hmm. some sort of equal. Mm-hmm. But I was happy playing the role of the coffee shop owner. In the, in the first half, that was your. In the first yeah. act, I would have stuck with that. That was fine with me. <laughs> What about, did you have, uh, or do you have now, I know you are very interested in movement, but like other tendencies then or now writing, um, I guess directing you've done some of, are there other areas of the craft that maybe you wish you could have explored more then? Yeah. So voiceover is something that I, I was interested in since I was an adolescent, since I was young. I really love voiceover. Do you remember when I was in college and we had a voiceover instructor? She was like a friend of Susan Lee's who came in for a quarter. I don't remember shit. She, she said to me, uh, 
the age of radio is over. You don't really have a place in this business. <gasps> no. She was all she was all about the kind of uh, raspy vocal fry female voice that was popular at the yeah. time. So she was really promoting those female voices and was basically like, you need to take a back seat. I'm sorry. The age of radio is over. You're not going to have a place in this business. And I took that seriously because I was 19. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. I was like, oh, shit. And so since then, I, I have experienced the uh, repercussions of that, even though I'm intellectually aware of it, like trying to get into the voiceover business, I'm hobbled. Like I can't push through the difficult first months of trying to establish something. I can't get through that point to go any. And so I I just kind of gave up on it. I like the sound of my voice. I'm so surprised you're not a voiceover actor that I, in (laughs) fact, I, in the back of my mind, I think I assume that you did voiceover, but wait, what are are you, I'm trying to understand what you're saying. You're saying that you, when you try to establish yourself, you find yourself like undoing it or, or, or you feel that the hurdles are insurmountable. Or both. Well, I, I, whenever I've tried to get started, I feel like there's, and this is the thing with being a white guy, I think, is like, there's way too many of me. I, I don't think that I have that much uniqueness to offer to upset the, the business and become something mm-hmm. that I, oh. you know, to add something to the community. So at this point, I feel like now at first I was hobbled with the age of radio is over. And now I feel like I'm feeling a little like, well, I guess I don't really have anything new to bring to voiceover. I would just be really impersonating the guys that Mm. came before me. Mm -hmm. Um, So maybe that's believing some of what was told to me when I was an adolescent a little bit and also kind of reckoning with, you know, just where we're at as a society right now and as a culture right now. Maybe it's a mix of both, but But also the age of radio has never been over. Right, because then right, it just kind of this phrase just kind of sinks right in there, doesn't it? I mean, it's also not true. So, so what I what what sticks out to me is that when we're nineteen and these people in power say things like that, the repercussions. Hear me now. If you are an instructor of some kind, they ripple out until you are forty-five years old and you are still dealing with them. Now, I'm not saying they did it on purpose. Maybe some people did, but it's harmful, and so I think. I think it's bullshit. And I also think that I want you to meet my voiceover agent. And I also think that, <laughs> that I, um, I just am shocked at what we say. And, and Gina and I talk about this because Gina has kids. I don't, but just that what we say yeah. matters to people and you have kids and what we say matters to people um, more than we could ever know. It drives me insane when I hear stuff like that um, because I've heard it too stuff and it's not fair. And we were 19 and you have a fantastic voice and you're kind. That's the other thing. It's like a lot, you can hear the kindness in your voice. And I, mm-hmm. I'm so serious, and we need that in this industry. So that's all I'll I'm say on that. Get off my box, but man, thanks for saying yeah. that. But I, I, I want to say something too about what you were saying with the, the messages. There's something that, and I'll, I'll say his name. You can edit it out later. Said to me in his office one day, and I'm surprised. I bet there's a lot of stories that. Oh yes, we bleep his name on the regular. <laughs> <laughs> so he had me in his office. Uh, I think it was like sophomore year, like second year. And he's, and, and I was sitting in his office and he said, 
all right, get up. And I stood up and he said, now turn around. And I turned around in a circle. He said, no, turn your back to me. And I turned my back to him. He was still sitting down and I was standing. And he slapped me on the ass, both cheeks. He said, this is getting too big. Oh my Sit God. down. And I sat down. He said, if you're going to get anywhere, you have to lose some weight. Your ass is getting too big. Oh, my fucking God. I'm and so sorry that happened to you. <laughs> well, you know, and I feel like at that time, and I've talked about this story a lot, but after listening to your show, I've been thinking about it more. Like, I feel like what he was trying to do, I think what he was trying to do, if I assume the best, is he thought that that was the form that I needed to fit in order to be successful. You know, like, and I, and when was looking at my headshot and said, that's your, uh, can I come move your casting couch for you headshot? I was like, yeah, awesome. This is cool. I'm going to be the sexy young guy. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Um, but that wasn't me. And I didn't know that that wasn't me. I wanted it to be me. Sure. That, of course you did. You, you wanted know? to be liked and loved and picked and worked and feel. And sexy, sexy. and cool and, and stuff. You know, so I wanted to fit those molds. I wanted to lose the weight. I wanted to be the casting couch guy. I wanted to be, you know, I wore a leather jacket with the collar popped and my hair, you know, the sideburns and the, the earring and stuff. You know, I did the whole thing. Um, and I went to L.A. and I, I went to meetings, but I, my personality isn't that. So I didn't follow through on the expectations. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You didn't know so, who you were because people were helping you to say, this is who you should be. And it really probably somewhere inside you were like, no, no, I can't. Just like if you're not. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. How can you show up at 21 or 22 at meetings with adult people that are trying to, it, that want you to sell certain things? And in your core, something about your being is like, this isn't, this isn't me. It's going to not work out. I spent money on a really slim fitting, nice suit, you know, good sunglasses, walked into the meeting trying to feel like, yeah, I'm the, I'm the sexy guy that's going to solve all your Hollywood problems problems but i couldn't hold a conversation because i didn't have the confidence right. you know despite the and why wouldn't you why how could you have confidence when people are telling you you're too fat you need to do this and you're or or you're you're yes you're headed in the right direction. you're sexy and yeah yeah right you guys i just feel so sick to my stomach about that story and i i part of what makes it so um sickening is that I mean, he touched you, but he also he made you turn around. S something about that is like, it just really is hitting me right in the center of my chest because how fucking dare you? How dare you? It was so you, vulnerable. Right? You know, it was a really vulnerable moment. And I feel like we, we put ourselves in vulnerability with our, with our teachers in that, in that milieu, mm -hmm. right? In the conservatory program, um, whatever the modality of art that you're studying you're in a really vulnerable place mm -hmm. you're experimenting mm -hmm. you're putting stuff out there that represents you that's right and 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 so like for anybody in college probably the experiences uh that child has had pretty much the same set of people their whole life reflecting back to them who they are and then yeah. you don't know this but part of why you go to college is to have other people reflect back to you who you are so that you can figure it out and decide which one, which is why we all do that. So many 
and in high school too, like trying on personalities and trying to see what's going to fit. Totally. And then in theater, it's like you're trying to do that. You are receiving messages from people about how you're perceived, but then you're also being asked to be open to be anything new it's just so tricky and dangerous and 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 there's so many billions of ways that that self-image can be uh, splintered right some of them might be good but a lot of them are really not well and the highest value that we bring into the classroom is our vulnerability right being being as open and open 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 and neutral as possible right egoless is try to be as egoless as possible so we're so receptive. Yeah, we're so receptive and we're so fragile. You know, people are fragile. We're also fragile. And it's like, I I just, I'm just always shocked at how quickly someone, someone can um, crumple a a, a child. Mm -hmm. The episode that airs today is the one with Erica who mentioned you. She's, she's actually, when, when we interviewed her, she said, have you talked to Paul? Erica Yancey? Yeah. And, oh. and so she's the reason that we, I think I called you or emailed you, sorry, later that day. Um, but, she, oh my God, I just lost my train of thought. Something Erica said maybe about, about the theater school. <laughs> she said a lot oh, of no, things. Oh, oh, no, we were talking in today's episode in, in the first part about, oh, victim impact statements. That's what it was. We were talking about victim impact statements. Ooh. We should, maybe we can't do it in real life, but we could write a play where students gave their victim impact statements to their Ooh. teachers, right? Like you had the opportunity, kind of like in defending your life, you have this, well, it's not really like defending your life, but you have, you get this kind of council of teachers and then everybody who was their student, if toxic teachers can come in and say, this is what you did. Probably you didn't mean to, probably no teacher would say what I really wanted Paul to do was uh, never consider voiceover, even though that's what he totally wanted to do. <laughs> she, she wouldn't have, she thought she was doing you such a favor. Right, she right. Don't was, waste your time, kid. She thought she was saying, that's what it is. They think they're saving you from the humiliation that then they are Absolutely. inflicting right. on you really, in the moment that they're saying it. They think they're saving you and really they're they're slowly killing you. I mean, like, it's real in a way. It's real. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. This, this feels like a, a non sequitur, but I want to follow it. So, Gina, I know that you directed Under Milkwood. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also directed Under Milkwood. Nice. Uh, um, we, we rehearsed at the theater building in the courtyard. And, and so I really had a strong connection to production of that play in school. Mm-hmm. So much so that I really wanted to recreate mm-hmm. that experience for another audience. Was that your experience too? Yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. So he can't all be... Right. The devil. Right. No, no, no. Because that play was so beautiful that it touched, I mean, it moved me for the rest of my life, you know, and that came from him and his heart. Right. So there was something about like, I really trusted him because he was so earnest and passionate about the capital T truth. So I fed, I thought that I totally bought into that. And I believe that he believed it. Dude, if we could interview him, he would probably have stories that would, you know, make your hair stand on end about what people said to him or what people did to him. I mean, that's what we find, right? 
and then his teacher would say, they literally beat me on the side of the head when I did something wrong. Like, it's just this thing. It's just like what the, the traumatization is almost like an absolute value. Hopefully, hopefully not forever. Um, just the only thing that changes is the way that it's inflicted. And I think what happens through generations, you think, well, if I'm not traumatizing somebody the way I was traumatized, then I'm doing good already. Right. Like I'm not literally hitting them. I'm not literally spitting on them. I'm just telling them that they're pieces of shit. That's, that's fine. Right. Right. And I think that that comes, that's it's my mom used to say, well, at least I don't beat you like my parents. And I thought, well, that's where we're coming from here. Well, no wonder this is what I'm working with. So it's like, we're working with damaged people who are who are probably have really good hearts but made some awful awful choices when they open their mouths sometimes i remember uh don elko stepping into a scene with um chris pryling oh, right what happened to him in la he's a fashion designer he or he was oh i yeah. bet he is he's i love I so that. close to him for a short time i remember in ilko's class uh, Ilko stepped into a scene with Chris. He, he put a, he stepped and tagged an actor out to take over the role. And in playing the role in the scene, he whacked Topher up the side of the head really hard. It was a scene from um, uh, Eugene O'Neill, the uh, the act older actor dad and his sick son. Um, so he smacks his son upside the head, and Topher like totally broke character. Was like, hey. Covered his head like, look back. What the fuck is wrong with you right now? And and Don seemed to like bristle a little bit and say like, you know, you need this is the place you need to get to in this scene. You need to get to like he was really trying, passionate, cared about this actor. Right. Stepped in to push the actor to this point because he felt like that was the right thing to do. But it was abusive. Well, right, and also. It's abusive, and it just strikes me as these people were like our parents then. So, like, they were, there was, like, such a parent thing, and it was, like, parents, but the, they weren't our parents, and parents shouldn't be doing that anyway. But I'm just saying, like, they were our teachers. But I think you're right. Like, there must have been a different time or something, because that wouldn't happen. Now you'd go to right to jail, right? When you think about those people as, with your adult eyes, you, you, you can see them so much differently. You can see yeah. their trauma there the way that they and and you know i think now this is another thing that's different but i think for for when we were there it was definitely a lot of people who were very frustrated uh, you know actors really wanted nothing more see okay so i'm just gonna do a little thought experiment and try to put myself in, in this in their shoes so well actually it does i don't have to think that hard i actually had this experience but um so I want nothing more than to be an actor. How I want to be, how I can see myself being is not matching up with how I'm actually being and certainly not with how people are perceiving me. I don't want to have a day, a day job that's not related to this. So I choose to teach. And then I watch talented people who I think are definitely going to get somewhere, not, you know, not getting it in some way. And then I want to hit them on the head. I mean, I, I don't want to hit anybody on the head, but I'm just, I'm trying to like empathize with the, with the frustration. Sure. 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 Holy Deep shit. and abiding frustration. Wow. Okay. Wow. We've covered a lot. <laughs> <laughs> what, um, 
can you talk a little bit because I'm a little bit obsessed since I live in LA now of with the showcase experience did you feel mm. we talked a little bit about how you so you got these meetings so you print you 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 dolled yourself up do you remember what monologue you did for the showcase okay yeah I don't remember what it was for, it was a weird monologue I so the monologue was Satan so I was <gasps> Satan and I was talking about um awesome. Uh, how to capture souls and how delightful it was to trick people into giving me their souls. So, and I wore, and I dressed contemporary with my leather jacket. And I mean, the leather jacket was like a key, key investment yeah. at yeah. the time. <laughs> I'll say. Right? So it's part of the persona. So I did this whole, like, I'm a, the cool devil. I'm going to get your soul. And I got to use my voice and be kind of creepy and, you know, maleficent. Well, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's the word I'm looking for. Yeah. And, um, and so that was a blast. And I felt like pretty cool. And, and so, yeah, I got a couple of meetings and not everyone did. And, uh, you know, you take a cab out to 100 millennium way or whatever, <laughs> like the, it, the, the, this cluster of tall yeah. buildings in the middle of nowhere. Century city. And yeah. Yeah. Century city. Right. Something like that. And, and I, I think I went to like three meetings, but each time, and I, and I had the one suit and the one dress shirt and the one tie and the, like the whole outfit thing was starting, like by the end of the meetings was starting to feel uncomfortable and not as pressed, you know, a little crumpled, you got a little crumpled, a little crumpled. And so was I a little crumpled, you know, and like feeling like I'm not selling this, hmm. you know, each meeting would end with, so, well, when you decide to move to LA, Mm -hmm. because I wasn't ready to make that commitment because I didn't know what the Right, mm -hmm. of course. Man, I just... What, what? So I left with a lot of uh, business cards. What? By the way, that's... Everybody who we've talked to who's had a meeting, that's what they say. The person said, well, if are you going to move to LA? Uh, I don't know that we've found anybody who who said, well, well, yeah, yeah, I am going to move to LA right now because also the... I'm just trying to think, like, what's even the... What was even the um, thought about what would happen because you can't move to LA because an agent likes you. That doesn't mean you have a job. That just means they get 10% of whatever job that you can get. So really what was the thinking behind it was a half, you know what? Half baked I'm idea. Say, it was a half baked idea going to New York. Yeah. You could uh, find out like whether or not people, you know, wanted you to, because I think in New York, it wasn't, or maybe it was agents in New York. I had this feeling like in New York, it was more theater companies would come and, and then maybe even say that they wanted to cast you in something. But in LA, it was never going to be that. It was only going to be. We either didn't go to New York or I blocked. No, we, no, 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 we mind. didn't. They, they, that's what I'm saying is they shifted instead of going to New York to go oh. to LA, but I'm not certain necessarily what the thinking about it was. Maybe it was literally just here's LA here, you know, Here's like a very small glimpse of what the life is like here. It's part of the attraction, right? Like, I mean, I'm going to go to the theater school, but I actually I'm going to be a movie right, star. Mm -hmm, right. Mm -hmm, and then mm -hmm. we talk a lot about on the star. podcast about the schism between being a theater actor and a theater artist and then all of a sudden being expected to be famous as an aunt on screens when you have no idea how to do that. It's really quite something. It's like... Jen... Yeah. The uh, stinger that you have on these episodes, are we famous yet? <laughs> like, 
cracks me up every time because it's so it's got that kind of sardonic sort of like I don't even believe it I'm saying it right. out loud. <laughs> right. It's sort of like wait I, I think because it did feel like the goal was we learned all these techniques for acting and movement and voice and how to take yeah. care of ourselves and then it was like kind of felt like well forget all that you're really your job is to be skinny and pretty and be famous and so it which is a very hard thing to do and so it's like that schism is drives me bonkers. I'm like, you know, and I think it's gotten better and maybe your wife knows and you know that. And, and I, I actually teach BFA fours online and, um, and I think I'm trying to like sort of help the schism, but it's like, when we went there, it felt like it was a million miles wide, that that crater in the ground between I'm a theater actor, but really I'm just supposed to be on Friends. You know what I mean? Like, what? Yeah. Right. It's hard. Other people seem to, other people, I've said this on here before, but other people seem to have been totally prepared for that. Totally. I was like, <laughs> what, 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 what did you say did you now? <laughs> And also, other people seem to know before we got there, and I didn't know that you could get cut. Um, oh. And other people seem to know that you should be trying early on to angle and and kind of like figure out, you know, what. Anyway, I mean, it's 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 almost beating a dead horse at this point. We didn't know what we didn't know, and we're learning right, it now. Right. No, we started with. I think my class started with eighty students. If I remember correctly, we started our class was uh, an enrollment push. And I think 14 of us graduated. Wow. So sometime between freshman year and senior year. Uh, and uh, John Bridges said very um, smartly, I think, you know, some people leave not because they're cut, but because they can't stick around. Mm -hmm. And we certainly experienced some of that. But man, we've just we've spent all those four years trying to please everybody yeah. and try to figure out ourselves while doing that. And it that. doesn't work. It doesn't. Here's the thing. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a fool's paradise. It's not real. And it's so <laughs> crazy. And I'm 45 and now I'm going, Oh, this was a different kind of confidence game this whole time. This was an inside job. They didn't, mm. I didn't understand that. And I think it's, it's amazing. The things we, that I thought I wanted or that, that, that I thought other people wanted from me, whenever I'm just myself and that real vulnerable, the true sort of my true champions want that from me and that's enough. And I'm like, what the hell? This is who told, but again, and we're beating the dead horses now, dead, 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 dead. But it's like, we didn't know, we didn't know what we didn't know. And, and we didn't always have the best guides. Yeah, it strikes me that um, Hostel. Oh, that dog again! <laughs> it strikes me that uh, Jim Hostelprof said in class, right? Um, what do you What do you want to do, or what's your dream, or where? How do you want it? Do you remember him asking this question? I remember us all being like, uh, "I just want to make a living being an actor." Like we had no, there was no model for us to direct right. ourselves there was toward. no mission statement. we didn't have no mission statement the, the people that came to visit us like angry f marie abram or 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 uh, rip torn or you know people coming to yell at us about being professionals were, <laughs> like, were you in the room by the way with the f marie were you there when totally totally i remember that very distinctly and and i remember rip torn yelling at a, some girl about who was coughing put a piece of ginger root in your cheek and shut up or something like that because <laughs> she was coughing while he was talking you know, like have these professionals come in and yell at us about <laughs> about being professionals, but that doesn't give us a clear vision 
of what's possible for us. I've had a lovely 20-year career directing and acting in plays in Chicago. I didn't make a dime off of doing it or, you know, very little. Um, but I made some great work and I had some great experiences. And I'm not done. I'm going to go back to it eventually. And for now, I'm just taking a little step back. And I, now mentioning that thing about Rip Torn, and I was remembering uh, Brian Denny. Boz, were you there when Brian Denny came? <laughs> he was our celebrity. And I don't. Yeah. I don't remember much about it. He was so angry. I met him later. He was, he was so angry. He was so angry. And and what I'm realizing now is it's just that it was the same thing as it was maybe with our professors. Only these were working actors. It's it's mm. just it's this it's this very bizarre inclination to see somebody to see a younger version of yourself and want to just punish them. It's like you see the younger version of yourself, you want to destroy them. You want to like yeah. pulverize them. It's so weird. It's so crazy. Because we're trying to emulate those who came before us. Yeah. You know, and it's, it, even if it's just subconscious, we're like, well, I got to give them tough love because the tough love is what got me to where oh. I am. But meanwhile, never stopping to say, wait, was it the I'm tough suffering. love? That <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a drunk that can't get it together. Like, that's right. Maybe it, hmm, maybe it wasn't, wasn't the, the tough, tough love. love. Maybe I need <laughs> real love. <laughs> maybe I need some actual love. Yeah, yeah. Self love. On that, that is a good. That is a perfect note a to end ending. on. Oh. Thank you so much, Paul. Thank you for the actual love, and thank you so much for doing this show. This is a blast. Yes, thank you. You survive. You're thriving. You, th- you're, you, you sir, thrive. I thrived. Sir, thrived. Great word. Amen. High five on that. Let's put it on a t-shirt. liked what you heard today, please give us a positive five-star review and subscribe and tell your friends. I Survived Theater School is an Undeniable Inc. production. Jen Bosworth Ramirez and Gina Polici are the co-hosts. This episode was produced, edited, and sound mixed by Gina Polici. For more information about this podcast or other goings-on of Undeniable Inc., please visit our website at undeniablewriters.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you.